going to be hopping out as soon as, um... Now recording. Oh, hey, Craig. <laughs> we're, Lee, we're planning a Dungeons & Dragons game. <laughs> D&D. Yeah, man. Parking I... like it's, uh, 1970-something. Getting all together in somebody's basement. That's <laughs> older than I am. Like, every every group of friends that does, you know, online content eventually has to do a D&D campaign. Neither of those are feet picks, and, uh, I mean, let me tell y'all, I could use a pedicure. Psychic Dolphin Garage. Welcome, everybody, to another episode from the Psychic Dolphin Garage. This is the Psychic Dolphin Experience, the show that we run where we bring people on that are hopefully smarter than us and more prepared to uh, talk about things that they are experts and specialize in because we're all dumb and do not do anything with our lives. Today, I have Lee Dogerty. Lee is from North Texas, and uh, you're involved with the DSA. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. How are you? I am doing fantastic. Lee, you're involved as your precinct chair. You are doing a lot of a lot of practice in your day-to-day life. I am. I uh, Even through COVID and the pandemic and being furloughed at work, it took something that was almost already a full-time responsibility outside of work into uh, even more one during the last couple of months. But uh, that's been that way for a number of years, but I wouldn't trade it for anything. That's awesome. I uh, I really think it's you know, such a big step to be going from posting online to actually, you know, having to participate in city council meetings and talk to the people that we relentlessly persecute as being idiots, having to actually deal with them on a day-to-day basis. So mad respect for all the work that you do. Um, I want to talk to you a little bit about it all and kind of get your perspective on, you know, your experiences I know not necessarily the opinions of the organizations that you're involved with, but really your experience uh, since you grew up here in Texas and since you were trying to help build the revolution in, in our uh, during this election year. During this election year. Okay. <laughs> I just want to know if I had that. Yeah, debate. I mean, the, there's larger debates to be had about whether electoral politics is worthwhile. But as far as getting people interested and making people feel like they can participate, like they can make a difference is, is the most important part, right? Absolutely. And I, I think you kind of touched a little bit on it there. I do a lot of electoral organizing and I am the electoral working group lead for uh, DSA North Texas. And there is a lot to discuss about the, the usefulness of electoral politics. But I, I really like the way DSA frames it is there is no part of any kind of power system that you can just cede to the right. And electoral has to be a part of the organizing. It can't be the only thing you do because I think most people realize, well, I don't, well let me take that back. <laughs> I don't think most people realize that fundamental change of society doesn't happen at the ballot box once every four years. It, it takes building and organizing on a consistent basis. And you see the electoral advocates talk about voting every time and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, once again, anyone that looks back through history, especially American history, realizes that any great social advances happen with mass organizing and mass protests, and they don't happen when you just happen to elect someone. Of course, the issues around November and voting with the current state of affairs is another discussion to have outside of just electoral framework, but I think they do go hand in hand because it also gives you something to do outside of, you know, random four-year cycle that drives everyone crazy. 
Right, right. Well, and certainly taking advantage of the increase in what people see on Fox News and NBC, it's all just Pete Buttigieg this random politician that we think you love has a podcast now. And it's become a spectacle. And I think our position has always been that the way to get people into politics is to make find something that matters to people and to build an organization, to build community around that. And I would love to hear like your experience, like what inspired you? What changed your what changed your views? What radicalized you into politics? And where do you think you made the choice to end up here, you know, today with the DSA instead of a Biden voter? Um, those are not mutually exclusive. Uh, those two things. First, I want to ask: Does Does Pete really have a podcast? I saw a tweet, or it was from the Hill, that said that Pete Buttigieg is releasing a podcast. But it looks like it's confirmed, so it's it's really great. I love it. Well, we're going to need to address that at some point. We're going to need to address it with tar and feathers. <laughs> uh, how I got into everything, I I kind of point back, and you know, I, I think I voted in Obama in 08, and mm-hmm. I think I was pissed at him at, in 12. I don't know. I, I really, I live in Oak Lawn, which is the LGBT neighborhood, yeah. and has a long history of activism and even rebellion many decades ago. It's pretty liberalized now, but I own a bar here. Um, closed a while now, but thanks COVID. <laughs> but I owned, I owned a bar and I was just kind of concentrating on my own thing, my own person and, you know, just running the business. And it was only back in about 2015, so maybe five years ago, that uh, we had a, a crime wave down here. And we'd done activism, you know, and everyone cheered marriage equality. And, you know, life's pretty yeah. good for cis, white, gay dudes. And everything was kind of fine. And then we had a real major crime wave down here in 2015. And right in the entertainment district down here, 30 people were assaulted and robbed. We had literally hate crimes, kidnappings, and like gay bashings on Pride. Wow. Really nasty stuff. Box cutter attacks, baseball bats, pistol whips. It really got out of control for a period of six months, but I had two uh, workers at the bar that were attacked, and that kind of flung me into a different direction. I'd realized that I'd spent 10 years at this bar just concerned with, you know, the 1,100 square feet it maintains and there was like you know a big fracture in the community where everyone was just kind of felt safe you know obama's in office we got marriage equality everything's cool and i think we got to look firsthand at the violence that is in society uh, sometimes targeted sometimes just criminal elements but it flung me into a uh, spotlight it was you know news we formed an organization to deal with public safety down here we quickly found that, you know, a lot of people call for law enforcement when crime happens. We're dealing with that discussion now, of course, right. nationally. Yeah. Um, flung me into really full-time activists and community organizing because we had to piece together the community because we realized as an entertainment district, we can't over-police ourselves down here because people get in trouble. You know, the homeless are targeted, sex workers are targeted, minority, you know, and minorities are targeted and stuff like that. So we had to be careful, even though there's a huge contingent of society that always calls for that. And we formed the organization called Take Back Oak Lawn, and we tried to really build community through it and directly dealt with, like, businesses to improve infrastructure. When the city does it, it's the failed broken windows policy, but you can actually address a lot of public safety through, like, lighting 
and basic infrastructure and litter. And if your neighborhood's being forced to do it by the you know the government, then that is a broken window step to gentrification. Right. When you're doing it as a community by the people that live there, it's a kind of a self gentrification and a self defense mechanism. Mm -hmm. And we found it was very successful. And that organization still exists five years later, and we've seen massive crime reductions without law enforcement in North Oakland, talking 40% decrease every year since then, wow. and really no violent crime here anymore. So it's, it's kind of interesting to go from that dynamic five years ago and then using kind of what I learned and everything like that, you know, into the discussions about police and, and what does public safety mean now. And then that kind of kicked it off. Then you had the Bernie campaign. Yeah. And I got to blend street activism, electoral politics, and I was living my life in 2016. Mm -hmm. And I was up at Standing Rock. Wow. Trump got elected, and yeah. since then, it's just been nonstop. You know? Yeah, that's awesome to hear about. That's not only like a great example of direct action that works, but that's also a great example of taking resources, of taking information and giving it to the community because the community is its own best city council because it knows what's best for the community. Because everybody knows each other. Everybody is listening to each other there, right? Absolutely. And we found great success with it. And the hardest work, I mean, the easy work is to scream, where are the cops? And throw a bunch of cops in your neighborhood and then act like everything's fine and safe. But, you know, the hard work was calling meetings and getting na uh, neighbors together, getting HOAs, neighborhood associations and businesses um, and organizations back together again because, you know, we used to be a really tight community. And if you look back during the AIDS crisis uh, in LGBT communities, I mean, we were left on our own. Reagan's over there laughing at us and mm -hmm. all kinds of shit and everyone's dying. We popped up our own healthcare schools, churches. And we did our own infrastructure. I always call it we kind of instituted a little communist state inside LGBT communities because the state had failed. Right. You're forced to create an autonomous zone. Yeah, and out of survival and self-defense. And, and I'm not going to relate a violent crime wave to the AIDS crisis. I'm just saying we looked to the past and that history of what we needed to do to build community and defend ourselves once again because government didn't do anything, yep. and we knew they weren't going to do anything. So we had to build our own self-defense mechanism, and I think that's the you know ongoing lesson we learn throughout almost everything in history, and especially American history. So what would you say your like political orientation was prior to this 2015 wave of activism that you have been continually involved in now? Wow, my ideology before 2015, 2015, 16, it, it radicalized me. That was the point. Yeah. Before then, I mean, it was just, you know, non-interested, non-news watching, wow. out of touch. You know, I grew up in a household that voted, but God, we never talked about it. Mm. Uh, parents are evangelical. Same. <laughs> I never voted for a Republican. I didn't really identify, but, you know, it takes a while to shake what your parents' thoughts were. Yeah. And then I went through that, you know, big L libertarian phase as a teenager. Ooh, you know, yeah. just leave me alone. <laughs> Don't violate my nap. Yeah. And then, you know, as I, as I mentioned, you know, Obama came along and I was like, hey, this dude sounds pretty cool. And literally every president, and I'm, I'm 41, but every president in my life has sucked so bad that I just hated all of them. So I just assumed they were all that bad. Right. You know, I bought the Obama 08 stuff. The alternative was, you know, obviously a piece of shit. Uh, voted. You know, once again, I became disenfranchised immediately in 12 and just returned back to ignoring national politics. And I think I remember caring more about local stuff, which probably was an early lesson learned 
and should be learned by a lot of people is the president's not going to affect you as much as your city council and school board's going to affect you any given day. Right, right. What would you say your orientation is now? Do you want to identify with the label and give us the spicy uh, tendency bashing? <laughs> I'm going to go ahead and put myself out for a little bit of cancel culture here. I'm not a big theory reader. I'm like all on Praxis side, mm-hmm. but I know enough Marx and Kropotkin and all the people to get, you know, those, I know those, enough those to, to, to cause a yeah. fight and to get out of one. <laughs> and as I say, but, uh, well, you're involved with the, with DSA. So like democratic socialism is kind of the way that it's, what I usually uh, tell people is see the overarching umbrella. It's identifies a leftist. I kind of float the more and more I read, I float between kind of anarcho syndicalism, communism mm-hmm. type as a personal ideology, but I organize under uh, socialism okay. uh, with uh, DSA, and you know that's kind of the direction, of course, you're supposed to go. Yeah. But you know it, that's what I organize under. So I kind of like have my personal ideology, and then I realize the need to organize under socialism itself under the DSA. Mm-hmm. I'm you know involved with the IWW, and I do prefer anarcho syndicalism to some extent. But also like the first theory that i've read is the theory that we've read on our reading stream and i'm like wow no wonder people read theory it's (laughs) lennon was right so i definitely can appreciate the oh i was radicalized by my material fucking conditions Mm -hmm. and you know that specific to texas do you think that there's anything notable about texas that led you to be radicalized something that is unique to texas that you have found you can exploit when you're going and creating these community projects? That's a fascinating question. I, Especially during the work and organizing around racial justice, you always draw a correlation to living in the South. Mm-hmm. While Texas was part of the Confederacy, things like Dallas had the largest Klan chapter in the nation. Of course, we are known for the assassination of a president. I mean, we've, we've had a lot of extreme right-wing fascist authoritarian politics mm-hmm. here in Texas, and the Texas GOP is tweeting Q stuff out now. So, yeah. I mean, we, we are in a very weird situation here in Texas, and of course I live in Dallas, which is a predominantly Democratic-controlled county and city, but it's been that way for a decade or so, a little bit longer, I'm sorry, than that. But it, it's stuck in this, and I always call it the neoliberal hellhole, you know, like civility politics and voters that are stuck in their politics being an actual identity. And it's really frustrating here locally sometimes. Dallas is very different from a lot of the other major cities when it comes to activist organizing because on on the landscape, a lot of organizations are very siloed into what they're working on. And I don't know if that's kind of by design, but it, uh, it makes organizing in Dallas really difficult. It's tough because we saw this in the primary this year. I think we saw it last time, too, is when you grow up in conservative households, mm-hmm. when you live in a conservative state, it's hard to shake conservatism. It's hard to shake that ideology. So a lot of our mainstream moderate Democrats in the South are Republicans everywhere else. Yeah. And it, that that's the hardest dynamic to work through and break, especially in Dallas, is to take a comfortable liberal and move them into radicalization. Now, Trump has done 
an amazing job at that <laughs> for a lot of stuff. But uh, I'd say that is the hardest thing to do. And oftentimes, there's really nothing to directly point to and say, let this radicalize you, you know, as we're still a red state and the Texas GOP acting like fascists, mm. it's still based in outrage politics. And I think we won't have really good discussions until we actually purple this state or let's say this year, take the house ledge of the uh, state government. Yeah, that's, I had never thought of it like that. I guess it's kind of accepted that you're getting pushback from both Democrats and Republicans, but like, you know, we have our own brand of Democrats here in Texas. Is there, and you said that as you're trying to radicalize them, trying to point out the contradictions of capitalism, you know, that's not good enough to radicalize them because they're not really truly leaning a little left. They're, you know, they're leaning right. Is that push to uh, radicalize them more about education? Is it more about exposing them to these communities that are in need, exposing them to other people in their communities? Is that like arguing with them all the time and being right over and over again? <laughs> I think it's, it is exposing. And it's one of those things that the left has so much energy to do is just continually pointing out the contradictions of the economic system, of what it causes, of capitalism. You just keep pointing it out. And, you know, it's kind of that long road you have to go down to where people just really start equating it because you know they're not going to pick up a book. You know they're not going to... Um, you know, hang out in leftist Facebook groups. Yeah, or, Lord knows I didn't pick up a book, so why do I expect them to pick up a book? They're probably not going to change with a conversation, but it's that old thing of just planting seeds. And, you know, you look at the, the youth and the younger generations, I think you see a lot more of that. And when you start dealing with people that are my age and above, you know, the, quote, zennials and the ex-gens, and, of course, everyone older than that, um, <laughs> it's really tough because it's just, it's that whole thing of it's the way it's always been. It's the way it's going to be incremental. It's that comfortable lifestyle. And honestly, you know, the racial analysis of it, this country is very comfortable for white folks. And it always has been and always will be. Even the, mm -hmm. the poor and destitute ones think life is shitty sometimes. But, you know, it's always better than the other person, you know, that we get to blame depending on the decade in this country. <laughs> so, you know, it's just, it's those kind of dynamics. And that's why, you, you know, the DSA was really active in like the paid sick time campaign here in Dallas and, and throughout Texas. And, and we, we've got to go after the, the police oversight coalition. Uh, there's a lot of members active in the defund Austin, uh, you know, APD, Austin PD, Dallas PD. It's getting those wins that change the conditions of someone's life, material conditions, we're going to, you know, march this up a little bit. And <laughs> then I believe, I hope, people will begin to realize that change can happen. And I, I think it was unique during the paid sick time campaign after it passed. It's unfortunately been injuncted uh, right now. But when it did pass, you know, we were going into fast food restaurants. We were going into random places that are have workers that are, you know, kind of tuned out. And that's fine. You know, letting them know that under this new ordinance, they now accrue paid sick time. So when they get sick, don't come to work and get paid for it. And it was just the look of someone's face that something a lot of people take very for granted at their workplace, especially in the service industry. Mm -hmm. Nobody has paid sick time. Yeah. The look of people's faces of like, 
oh my god, Atlas just, you know, rolled off their shoulder type scenario of just relief. And I, I think we have to concentrate on organizing around actual change for people, you know, raising their wages and health care and stuff like that, and probably not deal with fringe issues that politicians like to inflame a lot that really aren't going to change people's lives. Right, because that is all that politics is about. It's about the most wedge issue possible because that's what makes the most people vocally angry about it. Would you say there's something different about our right wing here? I mean, uh, you know, you've already mentioned that you know we have a wonderful, just a full history of just outright fascism in Texas, something we're all so very proud of here for some reason. Would you, would you say that that does translate to our right wingers being different in any particular way from other uh, conservatives around the country? I think so. But in dealing with like anti-fascist work and knowing history, this really dates back to Confederacy and Civil War, Klan, Jim Crow. These are natural um, white supremacist extensions of the politics of yesteryear. You saw it in the Tea Party rise that hit Texas extremely hard. And you also got to remember the kind of the class dynamic of Texas mm-hmm. is, you know, there's a lot of multi-generation. There's a lot of oil money. There's a lot of white generational wealth in Texas. And these are major power systems. And you have law enforcement like, you know, the Texas Rangers that were sitting here to eradicate every indigenous person and Mexican indigenous people at the time. So, you know, you have a state that's born out of horrific politics that, you know, we go to school in Texas and we're taught the Battle of the Alamo and Texas independence and how fierce we were and stories of Davy Crockett and Jim Bowie. And they just skip over the fact that that war was for slavery, too. Yep. It's just it's the the indoctrination of the South is going to take generations still to overcome. And if it start if the discussion starts with statues, which I worked here locally you know, a couple blocks away here, the Lee statue mm-hmm. here in Oakland. If if that's where it starts, then so be it. And it's gonna. It was tough. It's tough conversations, but let's have them and force our way through it, and be prepared for the white lash that always happens. Yeah, I I think uh, certainly y'all have a little bit more of that, like oil money up in Dallas. Here in Houston, we have our black mayor, our Hispanic uh, police chief, who really just. Why? You know, and, and, and we got our Christopher Columbus statue taken down pretty easily. You know, we just painted his hands red like 10 nights in a row. And they were like, oh, yeah, that's right. The whole BLM thing. Oh, we'll, we'll take the statue down or whatever. It feels like there's a lot less traction in Houston because we have more like hand-wringing liberals in office. And we are the representation city and we have taco trucks on every street. It doesn't quite feel as like mask off here as it did whenever I was up in Dallas. But yeah, the the lack of knowledge about most historical facts that would just radically lead a person to going, oh, you know, questioning the narrative that we've been taught, it seems to have been specifically washed out of high school curriculum, out of our education system at all. And, you know, as much as we have like the hand-wringing liberals here, we also have the great example that I use of the Houston Public School that was built in like the 80s and has like the cobbled exterior walls. And then Cinco Ranch High School, which looks like the drive up to Cinco Ranch looks like the drive through College Station as you go up to A&M. And the disparity is as much here, you know, in Houston, in the fourth largest city 
uh, in the United States as it is in every other city in Texas by design. And, you know, we run into the barriers of education. We run into the barriers of exposure to alternative facts that we don't get as individuals. I was caught in the Tea Party rise. I was, when I was in high school, there was like a local like Tea Party kids thing that I went to and they had a bunch of speakers come out. And I don't remember who any of them were, but, you know, looking back on it, it was, it was very specifically built to indoctrinate us further beyond just what we were, you know, what was being left out of our of our history books. It's a harder battle to fight for these 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 local changes it feels like because these are people that you have to be around a lot, you know? You it's a lot harder it feels like to go out and and meet these people, go out and try to form these communities because we have people that are so against the ideas that we want to spread and so indoctrinated against it, so inoculated even that you know anytime that you're protesting anytime that you're canvassing like it it feels a lot of times like they have better answers than you have is there you know i'm i'm sure that you've experienced that as well just pe- people that are that are not willing to even listen to anything that you have to say i i think there's a psychological reason for that but i think the conservative right the, the republican media machine and republican politicians have done an excellent job of keeping things simple. Mm. And I'm not going to draw conclusions about what different a liberal or conservative base can understand or comprehend. <laughs> that gets down a very dangerous slope of uh, classism and all kinds of stuff. Yeah, it's not even like the main point. The problem is that like there's a big lie that has been accepted, and now every small lie that relies on that big lie is just also accepted in turn because, well, how could this big lie be false? It's like, but it, what, wait. Right, it's in the education structure and they've beat the punch. And, I mean, you know, once again, I got to point back to like things like the lost cause, uh, the Confederacy and stuff like that is this is the way we're brought up. This is the way we're taught and the way you're educated. So it's, as an adopted kid, I had to deal with a huge lie at an early age of like, Everything you know in life is not really what you think it is. And that's a, that's a traumatic and earth-shattering event. And that is not something that most people are willing to put themselves through. So the difficulty of breaking that barrier, you know, and, and you might think it'd be easy because there's a lot of conspiracy theories and, and all that stuff, but those are based out of societal problems that we've been trained are our fault, and we need to point somewhere to blame someone. But what you have is this really basic ideology where you have a lot of single-issue voters that are given talking points, and whether it's irreligion, abortion, guns, it's a very simplistic platform that people can defend and then their media gives them a lot of ammunition to defend it. But when it comes down to it, if you've grown up and this is the only thing you know, you're going to have to admit your entire life's a lie. And that's a deeply traumatic thing to admit. And it's easier to just stick to what you know and then blame somebody else. And if you can't explain it, then listen for someone that can pop on YouTube and make up a story, and if it makes sense to you, then just regurgitate it. And it's a very dangerous way for a country to live, but I think what you said before is it's it's kind of by design that way, keeping your populace somewhat distracted or ignorant to what's really going on, and then, you know, have these culture wars about 
random stuff that really doesn't matter, you know, just deflects from the broader goal of, of capitalism and, you know, exploitation of the economy. Would you say that that's the appeal of Ben Shapiro? That's the appeal of something, anything to justify long-held belief that you have in, in being willing to debase yourself? And that's what it's about. And, and, and Shapiro is, if you can come off educated, if you can talk fast, if you're a good debater, if you look like you know what you're doing, you can get away with anything in life. Mm -hmm. For everyone else that has a small clue but might not know the entire picture, we're taught to listen. And, and if it, you know, once again, if it fits into your identity of what you've known and what you've been, quote, programmed with your entire life, if it makes sense to you, then you're accepted as truth, and the people that are telling you things can move you in any direction they want to move you in. And that's the power of these talking heads, because we've all been in online debate with people in a thread, you know, and then someone, and then you're like, source, you know, where'd you learn this? And they pull out PragerU or Shapiro or, you know, something, and you're just like, well, there's the problem. Yeah, my mom and I had to have the PragerU talk. Oh, the PragerU. <laughs> you know, you know, I thought that I thought that you know, as a twelve-year-old, like getting the getting the sex talk was bad. No, the PragerU talk was much worse. It's oh. once again, it's it's justification of your own biases, mm -hmm. and it's the most powerful thing media can do and online can do. And we we search out information to justify what we already know. And once again, you see that in liberals. And even left debates, too, is you can argue about anything and find an article to support you. Yeah. That doesn't mean your point is right or correct because we have a wealth of information and, you know, a spectrum of ideology. Yeah. It sucks that, you know, we don't have media machines. We don't have media frameworks that are designed to get us accurate information and there's no way to there's no way to legislate cops to stop them from shooting innocent people. There's no way to legislate large corporations and force them to give us good information like even facebook's like started doing all their fake news bullshit and it's like you passed up the problem like years ago pal <laughs> i don't think if you i don't think you realize that but there's just not a great way now even you know years and years into these large media companies pouring billions of dollars into these platforms for in order to spread lies like there's no good way to to take it back except one small I, I guess solidarity organizing, the same way that the IWW is solidarity unionism. It's the real answer to to these overwhelmingly, terrifyingly large structures that are that we have to that we have to fight against. Agreed, and, and a lot of times there's a lot of center and even left that approaches things from a reformist attitude, and and I think that is possibly the the biggest struggle. And maybe the biggest conspiracy that we've been taught, I can't remember the quote, but, you know, it's the divine right of kings <laughs> quote and the uh, abolitionist quotes about, you know, people always thought the system they're under will always be there. And I, I, I think leftists oftentimes either sh struggle, and this is probably one reason I don't read a lot of theory, is because, you know, academic leftists are... They're difficult people to talk to. Mm, they really are. Yeah. And we need to, you know, produce a very yelling, I hate capitalism all the time is kind of good for your bumper sticker, but it really doesn't get to the, the crux of what the argument is, is, okay, we have problems. Everyone knows there's problems. And then there's a bunch of people that think you can kind of 
you know, keep patching the system and reform the system. And then there's the section that believes you should kind of dismantle it and move on. And, and it's, it's really kind of language based. We see this in the, um, the defund police critiques where, you know, moderates are like, Oh, please don't use that word. Let's reimagine, uh, what it is and <laughs> let's reform them and, and let's hire more gay cops. Uh. We're stuck in that dichotomy. And instead of discussing what is a society that is post-police, what is a society that is post-capitalism? Yeah. I, I think we really struggle to ask that question to a lot of people. Everyone will agree things are bad and things could be better. But, you know, what is the vision? It, it's, it's very short-sighted to say, hey, let's fix this, instead of saying, let's look at the larger picture. And once again, I can barely remember quotes, and especially I don't remember who said them, but great uh, friend of mine and the best organizer I know, a Christian, told me a story or a quote once about the river with cats in it. And the person comes up and pulls the cat out and another cat comes along and pulls the cat out. And all of a sudden, all these cats start coming down the stream and all these people gather around to pull the cats out. And no one ever bothers to go up the stream and figure out why the hell there's all these cats in the damn river. Right. And I, I think that's something we really struggle with. And a lot of people struggle with discussions is we're so preoccupied with patching a broken framework, we're not going up the river and stopping it before it happens. And that's looking at generational changes and issues and possibly working on a policy that might not be beneficial right now, but in 10 and 20 years would change the world. Right. You look at universal health care in that thing, and that's why I think it's the most important thing for people to continue to push and push and advocate for, because I think it would be a fundamental shift and change of this entire society. I really do. Wow. That is, you, you really sold us on that there at the end. I like that. I, I think that's all the time that I need from you. You know, we have really talked about, um, about some cool stuff. You have had some, you've, you've told us some great stories. I, I loved, I loved having you on here. Do you have social media that you would like to plug? I do. You can um, follow me on uh, Facebook, uh, Lee Darty. Uh, I leave my Twitter fairly anonymous so if you're really smart you can find me on there um or um instagram if i ever take a good photo but that's it <laughs> awesome and the dsa north texas if you guys are texas listeners want to get involved that's a wonderful organization we meme on dsa a little bit but like they're still organizing if you're gonna put your time into something put it into dsa just the same way that i think we're gonna have brandon buchanan from the not safer walks on He's also the DSA Atlanta chair. Like these are these are wonderful people whose praxis we get to talk about here on our podcast. If you have, you know, time and resources to contribute to those organizations, that is a wonderful place. They're doing wonderful things with all of that. Thank you again, Lee, for being here. Hopefully we get to have you on a reading stream. We'll finally force you to get some theory in your body. Look forward to that book. Thank you so much. Oh, you're very welcome. And uh, to everyone else out there, y'all have a wonderful, a wonderful day. Howdy, y'all. Don't forget to follow our link tree in the show notes to discover new things like our Discord, social media platforms, and all the places where you can listen to our podcast. Word of mouth is the best way to introduce us and other leftist creators to friends, family, coworkers, your AA buddies. Community is about more than hot takes online. And if you want to support our efforts, you can donate to us at patreon.com slash psychicdolphingarage, which is spelled how it sounds. Hope to see you on the stream tonight. Enjoy this music by JJD. How the fuck I still got a full head of hair? Not a single brain. Fuck the
cops, family first Every single day bringing a charm when I rip the alarm My arms got a box cutter and stick here We gotta abolish ice, we gotta abolish ice, abolish it No need to apologize to Holocaust apologists For no reason we colonize the land and put up monuments Dope needles, dollar signs, the globe stands and astonished I hope there'll be a punishment I really wanna get bloody I really wanna stand in judgment of anybody Taking money from anybody in the struggle Anybody gonna budget Poor people getting 10 to 20 for some dumb shit Corporations incorporating a bloodlet Mark my fucking words, this coup will not be bloodless Mark my fucking words, this coup will not be bloodless Mark my fucking words, this coup will not be bloodless Mark my fucking words, this coup will not be bloodless Mark my fucking words, this coup will not be bloodless Mark my fucking words, this coup will not be bloodless Mark my fucking words